Welcome to The Lead. I'm Erica Hill. In for Jake Tapper, we do begin with breaking news this afternoon. You are looking at live pictures here of the Fulton County Courthouse, where Donald Trump's lawyers just finished meeting with the Fulton County DA's office. At that meeting, Trump's lawyers agreed to a $200,000 bond as part of the former president's release conditions when he surrenders to face charges over his effort to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. We are also learning details about the release conditions for at least two of Trump's co-defendants, former Trump attorney John Eastman, who's agreed to pay a $100,000 bond, and former poll watcher Scott Hall, who agreed to a $10,000 bond. Trump is expected to turn himself in on either Thursday or Friday which, of course, will be just hours after the first Republican debate. Eight Republican hopefuls expected to share that stage on Wednesday night, but overshadowing their appearance, the frontrunner who won't be there. Donald Trump is choosing to skip the big event, a decision he's made before, but it still is one that remains extremely rare in U.S. politics. Also rare, a candidate who's facing 91 criminal charges, a number of firsts in this 2024 cycle. Let's begin our coverage this afternoon with CNN's Paula Reed, who's in Fulton County, Georgia, in front of the courthouse there. So, Paula, what more do we know about this agreement for Trump's release conditions? Well, Erica, according to these conditions, in addition to that $200,000 bond, the former president is also prohibited from threatening anyone else in this case, including co-defendants, witnesses or victims. And that includes any sort of threat on social media. Even reposting is barred. Now that's notable, Erica. That's the first time we've seen it, and it's significant, especially because we've seen the former president use his social media accounts to go after judges, district attorneys, even to discuss the grand jury in this case. Now, we know all of the defendants in this case, including former President Trump, have to turn themselves in by Friday of this week. But before you can surrender, you need to negotiate uh, your bond agreement, which is why the former president's legal team came down here to Fulton County today to meet with the district attorney and try to hash out some of these details. And to know, Paula, too, that in terms of these other co-defendants, there have been a couple of other agreements for these release conditions. What more do we know about those? That's right, Erica. At least four other of Trump's co-defendants have negotiated bond agreements here today. Among them, conservative attorney John Eastman. He was the one uh, who tried to design a plan whereby the former vice president, Mike Pence, could overturn the election. He has agreed to $100,000 bond. He was really the first one, the first bond agreement that we saw appear today. Also one of the most notable names among this list. Another co-defendant, Scott Hall. He is a bail bondsman himself. He has posted a $10,000 bond. Now, both of them are prohibited from talking to any other defendants in this case. And lawyers for two other defendants were also spotted here at court today. So as of now, at least four people have negotiated their bond, plus the former president. So five down, Erica, 14 more to go. All right, Paula Reed, appreciate it. Thank you. Also with us, CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. So, Ellie, as we look at this, what do you make of what we see here in this bond agreement? The former president agreeing to this $200,000 bond. The conditions, also very interesting. Well, Erica, a burst of normalcy in a case that is anything but normal. But this is the way you would absolutely expect it to go. Both parties have an incentive here to reach an agreement because Fannie Willis now gets to set the stage for their surrender. Donald Trump and the other co-defendants take away the risk that they will not reach an agreement and then be arrested and potentially locked up. So now that Donald Trump and these other four defendants have an agreement, that sets the stage for them to surrender. And as Paula said, they have until Friday. But once the agreement's in place, then we can move along with the processing part of this. 
So you you know, once it's in place, could you see it happening sooner? Is your sure. Money, you, or is our money on Thursday now or perhaps? Uh, sure. So they have the ability to surrender at any time between now and Friday at noon. Important to keep in mind, by the way, this jail facility is open 24-7. So at this point, I think it's just a matter of scheduling logistics and convenience. I don't, I'm not sure I see any tactical play either way here in whether one surrenders on Tuesday or Thursday or Friday morning. So I was struck by, we saw this in John Eastman's bond agreement, right, that the the defendant can't communicate directly or indirectly about these terms with other co-defendants or or communicate with potential witnesses. What was interesting, though, and what we're seeing for Donald Trump, as Paula pointed out, that there are also conditions in here that include but are not limited to posts on social media or reposts of posts made by another individual on social media in terms of intimidating people related to this case. Were you surprised by that? Uh, I think it's smart by the DA and by really Trump's team to agree to this, because whenever you set the kind of condition that we're talking about here, you're not to speak with any witnesses, you're not to say anything threatening. There's always some wiggle room there, right? There's some room for interpretation. And so if I'm in the DA's shoes here, I want to be as explicit as possible. We know what Donald Trump does. He does this over and over again. He tweets or truth socials out things in coded language. And sometimes he does, in fact, tend to repost things that others have posted and then try to distance him. So I think it's a very smart move to call out that tactic in advance and say, that's something that we know you do and we're not going to tolerate. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that moving forward. As we talk about this surrender, so now that there is this agreement, there has been a lot of discussion about the possibility of Donald Trump being fingerprinted, having his mugshot taken, what that could mean. What do you think will happen here? Well, it's an interesting sort of conundrum here for the DA, because on the one hand, I think you want to send the message that everyone will be treated equal. And I think these bond agreements we're hearing about now are consistent with that. This is what happens in every case. And why should there be exceptions? On the other hand, the other three cases against Donald Trump, the decisions have been made by various law enforcement and prosecutorial decision makers that we don't need to have a mugshot. Mugshots are really only in case someone flees or needs to be identified by the public. I don't think either of those things would be an issue for Donald Trump. And if I'm in Donald Trump's attorney's shoes here, I'm not sure where I would come out on this. On the one hand, it's Mm. humiliating. Let's just be honest to have a mugshot taken. On the other hand, who knows whether he'll use it for political advantage or potentially to further inflame the jury pool, things that uh, you don't want to do when you're trying to keep the temperature as low as possible. So you talk about if you're his attorneys, what would you think about that in terms of whether they may politicize it? But what about if you're the district attorney here? What if you're what if you're in that jail? How do you weigh that political element? Yeah, I think if you're the DA, you have to be aware of the fact that everyone's watching every move here and that ultimately you're going to be picking your jury from this population. But I do think there's a powerful point to be made of. No exceptions. Obviously, we're not going to do anything that compromises the Secret Service's need to protect this person. We're not going to insist on handcuffing him, for example. We've heard from our Secret Service Mm -hmm. experts that that would not be acceptable. I wouldn't challenge that. But something like a mugshot, if I if I felt strongly enough about sending the message that everyone's treated equal here, then uh, I might well go ahead with it. So we'll be watching for that. Meantime, I was struck by this this piece written by retired conservative judge J. Michael Louis, Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe. So they make the case in a piece in The Atlantic that the Constitution prohibits Trump from ever being president again. So they write in here all officials who ever swore to support the Constitution and who thereafter either engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution or gave aid and comfort to the enemies of that Constitution are automatically disqualified from holding future office and must therefore be barred from election to any office. You know, you and I were talking, full disclosure, we were talking earlier today and you say this argument is flawed. Why do you think there's a flaw in there? 
Well, Erica, this is based on the 14th Amendment. These are two brilliant scholars. They're correct to note that the 14th Amendment rightly bars someone who's participated in insurrection or rebellion from holding future office. The problem is the 14th Amendment tells us nothing about how that decision gets made, nor does any case law or statute that's been passed. Does Congress decide? Is it Senate? Is it House? Is it majority? Is it two thirds? Is it a court? Is it a jury? Is it a judge? Etc. And what they propose in the article is they say, well, it's self-executing, which that does not do it for me. What they're proposing essentially is, well, every state, local, county official who handles ballots will just decide on their own whether he's disqualified or not. That would lead to wild inconsistency and chaos. And I, I don't think that's a viable, practical solution here. All right, Ellie, stay with me, uh, because we also have the new details that we're learning today about the investigation into Hunter Biden. The New York Times reporting earlier this year, special counsel David Weiss appeared willing to end the probe into Hunter Biden. Remember, this was before he became the special counsel here, and it would have concluded the investigation with no charges. But as two IRS whistleblowers came forward, the New York Times reports Weiss appeared to change his mind. CNN reporter Marshall Cohen joining me now. So, Marshall, this is quite the timeline here and what does it tell us, not only that timeline, but what does it tell us in terms of why David Weiss may have changed his mind at different points here? Yeah, Erica, new insights over the weekend from the New York Times about that internal deliberation and the haggling between the Justice Department and Hunter Biden's legal team and all the politics that's hanging over every single decision in this case. So the New York Times reported that there was a moment earlier this year when some prosecutors on Weiss's team were ready to move forward with a deal that would have no criminal charges for the president's son. They investigated potential illegal lobbying, money laundering, tax evasion and a gun possession charge. But at a certain point this year, they were ready to end the investigation with no criminal charges. However, things at a certain point changed. And what the Times report is highlighting is the fact that that was when IRS whistleblowers decided to emerge and go public with their accusations that the DOJ was treating Hunter Biden with kid gloves, going soft on the president's son, possibly because of political considerations. And it was around that time, Erica, when, according to this report, prosecutors decided to drive a harder bargain and insist that Hunter Biden plead guilty to something. Eventually, the arrangement was for him to plead guilty to two federal tax misdemeanors. That's what they took to a judge last month as their plan to resolve the case. But of course, as you know, that uh, collapsed in front of the judge when she scrutinized it. And Erica, there is still no deal. Yeah, collapsing in rather dramatic fashion. So in terms of where we stand today, could there ultimately be more severe charges brought against Hunter Biden? There could. You know, that's up to the prosecutors to decide how they want to move this case forward. They have alluded to their ability to bring charges in other jurisdictions like Washington, D.C. and California. And David Weiss is now a special counsel. He has the power to bring charges anywhere he wants uh, for the crimes that he thinks are appropriate. And those IRS whistleblowers, they are on record saying that they recommended felonies. So we'll see where it goes. Yeah, absolutely, Marshall, appreciate it, thank you. Uh, Ellie, uh, glad you stuck around here. So when we look at this, this evolution, it really is quite the evolution in a fairly short period of time, according to the New York Times. I know you've noted on multiple occasions just how long this investigation had dragged on. Have you ever seen a federal case play out like this before? 
No, Erica, it's really inexplicable to me. I mean, first we had basically five years of behind the scenes investigation with no transparency, no action, and some questions being asked, what's taken so long? But in the last couple months, we've seen a pattern here, and Marshall just laid it out. We've now seen it play out two or three separate times. DOJ moves towards a very lenient disposition. They're just about to lock in that lenient disposition. And then there arises pressure, either through whistleblower testimony or through public scrutiny. And then DOJ backs off and says, actually, we're not going to do that now that it's been called out. We're going to try to up it a little bit. And then that happened again. And then they go all the way to appointing special counsel, the same guy who's been presiding over the case for five plus years already. So I genuinely am perplexed by what DOJ is doing here. I think they've made a real mess for themselves and now they're gonna have to deal with the consequences of it. So in terms of the mess and those consequences, uh, look, public trust is certainly one of them. Is there anything that you see that DOJ could do based on your experience, right, as a former federal prosecutor to restore public confidence in this investigation? Is the only way to fix this a trial? Uh, it may be, Erica. You know, DOJ's sort of been in a darned if they do, darned if they don't posture on this from the start, but they've made it way worse by sort of careening back and forth here. It may well be that any deal is never going to be accepted as fair. So if I'm in David Weiss's shoes here, heaven help me, I would just say, look, we're charging everything we have. We're not in position to make a deal. It'll go to trial and we'll let the jury decide this. I think that's the only way to restore any credibility to this matter. Ellie, appreciate it as always, my friend. Thank you. Thanks. After slamming into California, Tropical Storm Hillary is now pushing east, heading to Nevada as the state's first ever tropical storm. And as President Trump prepares to turn himself in at the Fulton County Jail, his GOP rivals are preparing for the first Republican debate. Why the former president says he's skipping out Wednesday night. Courthouse in Atlanta, Georgia, a busy afternoon We'll keep you posted on the latest developments. Live pictures here of the Fulton County Courthouse in Atlanta, where President Trump's lawyers just negotiated a $200,000 bond for him. The former president is expected to turn himself into the Fulton County Jail later this week. Some really stunning video out of Mexico illustrates, as you see here, just the impact of Hurricane Hillary turning streets into rushing rivers, causing severe flooding, at least one death. Look at the power of that water there. Farther north, the remnants of the storm are now moving through California and Nevada. Schools closed, flights canceled, evacuation orders in place in some areas. And there's a chance here, too, that this storm could still break rainfall records, even causing landslides as it moves east. CNN's Kyung La is on the ground in California for us. The storm knocking out 911 service in some areas, stranding folks in their homes. In a year witnessing climate extremes, this time the chapter unfolds in Southern California. Summer records collapsed across the entire region from rainfall to mudslides. This one sent San Bernardino firefighters running. Come here, come here, come here. As a wall of debris rushed right towards them. Mother Nature clearly put her mark on us uh, over the last 48 hours. Hillary made landfall as a tropical storm in Mexico early Sunday, slamming into the Baja Peninsula. California braced for impact. 
the first tropical storm to arrive in 84 years. We're not built for this kind of rainfall. That's my main concern. In one day, San Diego got 10 times more rain than what it typically sees all summer. In the Palm Springs area, a year's worth of rain in one day gave way to mud, trapping residents. And across the region, roads began to buckle. Then as Southern California struggled with a historic storm from above, the ground shook. A 5.1 earthquake struck. Epicenter, Ojai, an hour north of Los Angeles. It definitely opened our eyes to that anything can happen at any time. And flooding is still a problem here as the storm uh, moves past Southern California. Even though this looks like this might be a canal or a river, uh, take a look. This is an actual roadway. You can see it's 15-foot clearance, and about half of this road is underwater. And this is after it receded about six or seven feet, from what I can tell. So this is coming to Nevada. That is currently where the storm is. Hillary drenching sections of Nevada, parts of Nevada, getting almost nine inches of rain. That is double the record that was set in the early 1980s. Hundreds, Erica, it is still raining in that state. Still raining, and these are all the records, of course, that no one ever wants to break. Young, appreciate it. Thank you. Just ahead here, what the latest polls in Iowa show with just five months to go, the caucuses. Live pictures here for you from the Fulton County Courthouse in Atlanta, Georgia, where Trump's attorneys have agreed to a $200,000 bond for the former president. We're also learning that at least six other co-defendants have negotiated the terms for their surrender. Among them, Kenneth Cheesebro, the alleged architect of the fake electors plot. His team agreed to a $100,000 bond package, bail package. So we'll keep you posted on all of those agreements. When it comes to the former president, he may not have a physical presence at the first 2024 debate later this week, but there is no doubt he remains a dominant force in this race. He's still the leader in poll after poll. In Iowa alone, take a look at this. Trump stands at 42 percent, which is more than double, as you can see, as his closest competitor, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. So how do any of those Republicans compete with numbers like that? CNN's Kristen Holmes has a look now at how the GOP candidates are hoping to at least try. Thank you all for being Top Republican presidential hopefuls are gearing up for the first primary debate Wednesday in Milwaukee without GOP frontrunner Donald Trump. I'm just going to be me. I feel like I've been preparing for this uh, first Republican presidential debate my whole life. you got to be ready for everything. I mean, people have already said, uh, you know, I'm going to be the guy that's taking most of the incoming. Looking to seize the spotlight and make their case for why they should be the party's nominee. Once this debate happens this week, it's off to the races. That's when you're going to start to see people really focus in on different candidates, look at what their options are. We feel really good going into the debate. The former president announced Sunday he would skip the first debate and possibly others citing his advantage in primary polls. Should I do the debate? Maybe we'll do something else. Trump's decision not to attend the debate comes as a new Iowa poll shows the former president with a commanding lead in the critical early nominating state. 
42 percent of likely Republican caucus goers say Trump is their first choice, more than doubling the support of his nearest rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. While no other hopeful reached double-digit support, a majority of those polled said they could be persuaded to back someone other than their first choice candidate. And for those contenders who will be on the debate stage, that's the opening they're hoping to capitalize on. We're excited to be on the debate stage, the least known candidate on there. So far, eight candidates have qualified for the debate and signed a loyalty pledge vowing to support the party's eventual nominee, a step Trump has refused. The former president's rivals calling out his decision to skip the event. He's a coward. There's no other conclusion to come to that he's both afraid of me and he's afraid of defending his record. And if I had his record, I'd be nervous about showing up, too. In Trump's absence, DeSantis is set to be the leading candidate on stage, with his campaign circulating a memo to supporters and donors saying the Florida governor is prepared, quote, to be the center of attacks. Over the weekend, DeSantis sparking backlash from Trump's backers after these comments. A movement can't be about the personality of one individual. If all we are is listless vessels that's just supposed to follow, you know, whatever happens to come down the pike on Truth Social every morning, that's not going to be a durable. Now, DeSantis's campaign did clarify later that DeSantis was referring to Trump's allies in Washington, not Trump's supporters. But again, that did receive a lot of backlash. And I do want to note, Erica, I just learned from some sources familiar with the matter. We had reported that Trump counter-programming to the debate was going to sit down with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson. I have learned from these sources that that was a pre-recorded interview. It will be released on Wednesday. Unclear where it's going to be published. Obviously, we know Carlson has been posting a lot of his interviews to X, formerly known as Twitter, uh, but a lot of anticipation for that as well. One of the many things his team will be doing to counter-program that debate. Yeah, uh, it is fascinating. Kristen, appreciate it as always. Thank you. Uh, Let's bring in our panel now as we dig a little bit deeper here. So, Joe, if Donald Trump does not pull a surprise, if he stands by his word here and does not show up on Wednesday night, what do you think the chances are that he will not dominate in absentia, that we could actually have a substantive, perhaps policy-based debate between these candidates? Well, look, I think it's actually quite good. I think there's the old saying, how do you devour a whale one bite at a time? And so if you look at those numbers where people are trailing President Trump precipitously, uh, the person with the largest chunk of the pie remains Ron DeSantis. And so I think you can expect people like Nikki Haley, uh, people like Tim Scott trying to figure out how they get their seven pounds of flesh. And I think also you've already seen preemptively Nikki Haley uh, with that release after those comments made by Vivek as it relates to Israel. So it's a good opportunity for the candidates to differentiate themselves, but it's also a good opportunity, I think, for them, those looking to climb that ladder, uh, to stake their claim to saying, I am the best alternative. So as they look to stake their claims, Paul, how effective can that be if, in fact, the guy they're trying to stake a claim against isn't there? Yeah, it's he's going to dominate. Mr. Trump is, even though he's not there. And I, I think the, every single Republican on that stage has to answer one question. Why you and not Trump? Right. So it's not enough to just say, here's my idea on taxes or education or crime. They have to say, I'm better than Trump on taxes. I'm better than Trump on education. I'm better than Trump on crime. Because the party, keep in mind, the Republican Party doesn't even have a platform. They don't even pretend to be about ideas anymore. I mean, when I was a kid, it was Ronald Reagan's party and it was low taxes and less government and and national defense and Christian family values. They had a platform. This is now a cult of personality, and uh, his personality is going to dominate even if his physical presence is not there. 
Which is fascinating because, and I, I just want to bring this up. You, you mentioned, Joe, you mentioned Nikki Haley's comments. For folks who aren't familiar with that, Nikki Haley went after Vivek Ramaswamy uh, last week, who said he would cut back on aid to Israel after a $38 billion aid package expires in 2028. So Haley, of course, the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., said he was completely wrong. She posted on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, quote, supporting Israel is both the morally right and strategically smart thing to do, going on to say it's part of a pattern with Vivek. His foreign policies have a common theme. They make America less safe. Who do you think Joe has the most to gain here if we do really get into a policy debate? Well, look, I I think just, you know, obviously I love Paul. I'd have to respectfully disagree. I think certainly there are plenty of ideas alive and well within the Republican Party. They just don't get a lot of oxygen when you talk about President Trump, who does have unique ability to suck the oxygen out of the room as it relates to Vivek and obviously former Ambassador Nikki Haley. Certainly, uh, there are going to be plenty of Republicans on that stage and across the country who are appalled uh, by those comments to somehow say that you don't recognize that we have a Chinese Communist Party uh, giving $400 billion to the Ayatollah and they're not going to stop if America walks away. A Chinese Communist Party filling that vessel in Afghanistan, that's not going to stop if America walks away. So, yes, there are certainly uh, deep, fundamental questions that need to be asked of these candidates. As we get to the point where we have to figure out, are your ideas simply a headline wide and an inch deep when we're looking down the barrel of a potential third world war, when we have that first war of expansion in Europe since World War II as it relates to Ukraine, and all the other myriad issues faced in America, including the fentanyl streaming across our southern border, killing over 70,000 Americans each and every year. Drilling down, getting details. Imagine that, Joe. Uh, I'm in. <laughs> I would like to see some of that. Uh, you know, Paul, Paul, you mentioned something about this cult, the cult of personality, right? The, the Republican Party becoming a cult of personality in many ways. I was struck by this. A CBS YouGov poll which found 71% of Trump voters say uh, they, they feel like what Trump tells them is true. That is higher than what they hear from their friends and family, as you can see there higher than conservative media figures, higher than their religious leaders. How do you think these non-Trump candidates can get around numbers like that, Paul? It's so hard. That's a great point, Eric. And it's, it, for me, it's sort of a heartbreaking number to look at because uh, yeah. uh, Glenn Kessler, the fact checker of the Washington Post, counted just during Trump's presidency 30,573 separate lies. 30, this guy is the he's the monarch of mendacity. You know, he's the, the prince of prevarication. He's the lord of lies. He's the pharaoh of falsehoods. And yet they those who follow him believe him more than their religious leaders or their own family members. Uh, I think that's heartbreaking. I think what he's accomplished is uh, Orwellian. He's redefined truth in the eyes of his followers, not as fidelity to fact, but as saying things that are politically incorrect that you can't say because you'd get in trouble if you said it at work. And that has real power. And it's going to be very, very difficult for any of those folks to pierce it. I think the only way to do it is to courageously speak the truth. You've seen Mike Pence, who's 6% Mm -hmm. in the polls. But I give him a ton of credit because he stands up courageously and says, the truth is the Constitution did not give me the power to pick the president. It gives that power to the American people. And I think at least that kind of fidelity to the Constitution is pretty admirable. Um, as we watch, I do want to quickly get your take on, and Paul, I'll throw this one to you first, the Biden campaign out with this $25 million ad blitz now touting, not surprisingly, the economy, targeting, also not surprising, these seven battleground states. You see them there on the screen. They should be familiar to all of us, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. These ads are going to air during NFL games, the World Series. They'll be on streaming services. 
Paul, what strikes me, though, is 51 percent of Americans feel the economy is actually getting worse. There's already been this Bidenomics blitz. How is a new ad buy going to counter that? You know, first, the targeting is right. They're also very, very heavy in black and Hispanic communities with these with different ads, which I think is great. And I give them huge props for that. Having said that, the message is only half a message for what you're pointing out. Right. They they seem to want to win an argument, not an election. The economy is better than you think it is. Really, really, really. We did a lot of good stuff. If they want to get credit for that, they need to interject the threat. You know, I just said Republicans have to say, why me and not Trump? Joe Biden needs to say, I did these things for the economy and Trump will repeal them. He will take away from you lower insulin prices, lower health insurance prices, all the jobs I created. They don't have that element of threat and they have to have that to have a successful political message. Paul Begala, Joe Pinion, always good to see the both of you. Thanks, Eric. Joe, great to see you, buddy. Well, always great to see you and, and beware of those half million Americans who are hiding their car from the repo man because of Bidenomics. So, again, as I say, uh, I will pick that one up next time, Joe. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thanks, uh, just ahead on a much more serious note, a California store owner shot dead after a dispute over her display of a pride flag. What authorities are now learning about this deadly confrontation. That's next. Family and friends are in shock after the owner of a California clothing store was shot and killed by a man who confronted her about the LGBTQ pride flag displayed at her store in Cedar Glen. It's near Lake Arrowhead. Cena's Josh Campbell is outside the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department. So, Josh, uh, it turns out this is not the first confrontation that the store owner had with someone over her flags. That's right, Erica. We now live in an era where something as simple as displaying a pride flag could put someone in danger. Our colleagues at The New York Times reporting that each time in the past that Laura Nelson uh, Carlton's flag would be torn down, she would simply put up a larger flag. But it was this encounter on Friday afternoon around 5 p.m. that turned deadly. Authorities say that a suspect went to her clothing store, uh, engaged in some kind of altercation. They were called to reports of shots fired. They found her there uh, suffering from a gunshot wound. She was later pronounced deceased. Now, authorities gave chase to the suspect. They found him about a mile down the road. The suspect brandishing a firearm. He was killed in an encounter with law enforcement. The investigation into him remains at this hour, but obviously this incident uh, shocking members of the LGBT community, certainly people around the country. The Sheriff's Department, I'll read you part of their statement. They say that through further investigation into this incident, detectives learned the suspect made several disparaging remarks about a rainbow flag that stood outside the store before shooting Carlton. Of course, the suspect is now dead, but uh, that investigation continues into that motive. This just the latest incident of anti-LGBT hate that ended in violence here in the United States, Erica. Yeah, in terms of that hate, you mentioned the investigation is ongoing. Is it actually being investigated as a hate crime? Uh, authorities aren't saying much right now other than the investigation is ongoing. In fact, I was talking to law enforcement. It's not clear at this hour whether they have even identified that suspect. We know in past incidents where a suspect commits a deadly crime, sometimes they don't bring identification with them. And so authorities are still very much looking into this individual because he's dead. They obviously can't get a statement, but they're trying to identify him, trying to determine whether there were past incidents here. But certainly members of the LGBTQ community, their allies uh, are in shock. They're demanding answers. Uh, uh, we just got a statement in just a short time ago from the organization GLAD. They say that today is a very sad day. Lori did not identify as LGBTQ+, but spent her time helping and advocating for everyone in the community. Certainly a tragedy here, Erica. Yeah, it certainly is, and, and so disturbing on a number of levels. Josh, appreciate the reporting. Thank you. You bet.
Well, any minute now, President Biden is expected to arrive in Hawaii, where more than 800 people remain missing after those deadly wildfires. And now fears are growing among Maui locals over a water conflict. Well, in a matter of moments, Air Force One is expected to touch down in Hawaii. President Biden will, of course, survey the utter destruction left behind by the deadly wildfires. This, as the mayor of Maui says, 850 people are still believed to be missing. Teams on the ground are working as quickly as they can to identify the remains that have been found. CNN's Bill Weir is in Maui. So, Bill, you know, there was some initial criticism and criticism over the last uh, few days about that initial response. What is the feeling? What are you hearing from people there ahead of the president's arrival? It's really a mix, Eric. You know, you get uh, people who don't want him to come. They're frustrated by the federal response early on. There's others who are very grateful to have the federal report. I just met, uh, saw, witnessed the most amazing couple here, Matt and Shawnee Schweitzer. Take a look at this. They just set up crosses along the Lahaina bypass because they wanted the president to just get some sense of the loss. Uh, they only had time to put up 53 crosses. They're coming back later with the rest of the 114. And then they plan to tie 850 yellow ribbons in a visible place to really drive home the enormity of this loss. I mean, that number is something. When I saw that this morning, it really struck me. Um, I know you've been speaking, speaking to so many folks there, too, who, as they look forward to this rebuilding, what that can mean. There, there's a lot of genuine concern about history repeating itself there as they try to rebuild. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the average tourist uh, who comes to this beautiful place may not know the uncomfortable history of this place in relation to federal authority, uh, but it really helps set the context for what they're going through right now. Here's a look. Just the missing souls on the worried minds of Hawaiians, or how and when they'll rebuild. There are also deep fears over the water that flows from the mountains to the sea and aquifers and keeps Maui alive. There has been a great deal of water conflict on Maui for many years. It's important that we're honest about this. People have been fighting against the release of water to fight fires. I'll leave that to you to explore. Okay, let's do it. And let's start with the American and European plantation owners who arrived in the mid 1800s to get rich growing sugar and over the generations diverted water from countless farms like this. These stone walls were built by our ancestors 500 years ago. Wow, really? Yeah, yeah. What people like our family and many other Native Hawaiian families all throughout Hawaii saw wherever plantation was, is their water disappeared literally overnight. Water disappeared. Like turning off a tap. Yeah. yeah. Which is why, like our family, like many other families in Lahaina and elsewhere, they were forced to leave their ancestral land. And maybe work for the same plantation owner that, that, who took your water, yeah, right? Yeah. But even after the U.S. apologized in 93 for the overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii, and even as once lush landscapes turned flammable, it wasn't until farmers like Hokuau Pellegrino fought in court for over a decade that water rights were returned. And even in our oceans, you know, because freshwater feeds those nearshore fisheries and grows the seaweed, the limu, you know, for the small fry, for our turtles and other, you know, important fishes. That's all coming back now that the waters are flowing to the ocean. But then came the fire 
and written complaints from the powerful West Maui Land Company, insinuating that firefighting efforts were hampered because a single Hawaiian farmer couldn't be reached for permission to divert extra water. In this particular case, it absolutely would not have made uh, any difference. You have to understand that the West Maui Land Company, Launiapoko Irrigation Company system is not tied whatsoever to the Maui Fire Department hydrant system. And helicopters weren't able to even fly anyway at that point. So, you know, to even insinuate that that could have made any difference is just a complete farce. But with an emergency declaration, Governor Green has rolled back Lahaina's water designation and told the New York Times that we tipped too far towards water rights for nature and natives. 75% of the water resource in Lahaina is controlled by private entities. Only 25% is controlled by the county government. It's one big reason Lahaina community leaders gathered the media on Friday to call out the governor. My hope is that the community had the input to build back how we see fit for our community. My fear is that the community will be gone and this will be replaced with multi-million dollar homes because we, get, we have realtors already calling. It, it's like just colonization repeating itself all over again, just in a different format, you know? It's disaster capitalism at its finest. You're throwing spears to the people of Lahaina when they're already down. The very first Hawaiians crossed oceans with sacred kalo plants in their canoes. And Pellegrino is now using descendants of those plants to make poi for President Joe Biden's welcome lunch. But he says this kind of aloha can only last if there's enough water for every living thing. The West Maui Land Company did not return a call for comment. The president is expected to be on the ground here in Lahaina. Within the hour, land and water will be constant themes he'll be hearing all day. Erica. Yeah, and questions that need to be answered um, for that next step. Bill, great as always, really appreciate it, thank you. We will have more on President Biden's visit to Hawaii coming up next in the Situation Room. Uh, you may want to think twice before handing your child a phone or tablet. A new study published in by the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics found that one-year-olds who have one to four hours of screen time a day could have developmental delays in communication and problem solving by the age of two. Wow. Remember when kids weren't supposed to watch TV before, too? The Situation Room starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.